I remember well the first time I felt guilty about something. It was about the age, as Macaulay Culkin is in that movie scene you just saw there. I was about six or seven years old, I suspect. I had grown up in a household of seven with a mother who really loved all of us well enough never to have any candy or soda or anything really good to eat in the house as far as we were concerned. And because she was a health food nut. Well, I thought my only chance of having a real candy bar was to steal it from the local jewel store. So one time my mother took me with her to the store to shop for groceries. I spied out the candy counter, waited for her to go around a corner, and then pocketed a Caravelle chocolate bar. I managed to make my way out of the store that day without my mother or the store management knowing anything about it. When I got home, I stole away into a corner someplace and enjoyed every bite of that chocolate bar and then neatly tucked away the wrapper and a garbage can at the bottom so no one would ever find it. Amazing. I'd gotten away with it. But then something really strange started happening to me. I started feeling really guilty and feeling really bad about stealing that candy bar. My momentary enjoyment had now turned to feeling really bad about it. I had a conscience, and it was making me feel bad. What was I going to do about it? Tell my health food nut mother that I had stolen and eaten a chocolate bar? I would have gotten a double whammy from her. Could I go to the manager of the jewel store and tell him that I had taken a chocolate bar? Well, no, of course not, because he'd be mad at me, I'd have to pay for it, and then he'd tell my mother, and I'd be in trouble yet worse. So I figured out a way to resolve my guilt. The cost of the candy bar was 10 cents, a dime. So I made a plan, and the next time my mother took me to the jewel store, I waited till she had checked out and headed for the door with the cart. I lingered just long enough to throw a dime up onto the checkout counter and run out of the store and catch up with my mother. Case closed. I felt completely absolved, and I had paid for the store back the full price of the candy bar. My mother never found out about it. Wouldn't it be nice if all of our sins and mistakes could be made up for so simply? It wasn't long after this I faced a much more complex situation I couldn't solve myself. I was playing catch with my best friend Michael Wells in his backyard near our home in Mount Prospect where he lived in those days, and the ball had gone over the fence and into the yard behind his, his backdoor neighbor's. Well, we got over the fence and got over there and found the ball and started playing catch in his neighbor's yard. It wasn't long before I threw a ball to him. It tipped off the top of his mitt. He didn't catch it. And it went right through a big window in the neighbor's house, breaking it, shattering it to pieces. Well, we did what any two eight-year-olds would do. We did the responsible thing. We looked around carefully to see if anybody had seen us, figuring no one had, and we ran as fast as we could away. Unfortunately, uh, the people who lived there, the Mace family, had seen Michael climbing over the fence going back to his home. So that night, they went over to his house, confronted his parents, and said, Hey, your son broke our window. And my best friend, my buddy of all buddies, said, It wasn't my fault. It was Rick's fault. He broke your window. And he told me that the next day, that he'd fingered me for the crime and that the family was really mad at me. Well, what was I going to do about that? Where is an eight-year-old going to find 10 or $20 to pay for a broken window? I simply couldn't do it. So I did this. I did the avoidance technique. I stayed away from their street, never walked down it or rode down it with my bicycle. And any time I saw that family anywhere around the neighborhood during that summer, I just ran away as fast as I could or rode away as fast as I could in the other direction. That plan worked for a little while till one day one of the older brothers in that family who was much older than me and could ride a bike faster than me chased me down. He literally chased me for blocks and finally cornered me and I thought he was going to kill me. These people are mad at me. But you know what? That wasn't it at all. He simply explained to me if I would apologize and pay for the window, everything would be fine. So now I had to tell my parents of what had happened. 
They made me write a note of apology. They gave me the $20 in cash. I went and knocked on the family's door, and they were really happy to see me. They welcomed me with open arms, especially when I gave them the $20. And everything was fine. Wouldn't things be so good in our relationships and in our relationship with God if everything could be forgiven that simply? When I was a little bit older in 1973, it was 1 o'clock in the morning. Our family lived very close to I-88. It was I-5 in those days. And we heard sirens out there about 1 o'clock in the morning. Didn't think too much of it. Until about 5 or 6 in the morning, my parents got a call. There had been an accident. My Uncle Jim and Aunt Esther had been involved in a head-on collision on I-88 out there, I-5. My uncle had fallen asleep, gone across the middle median. There wasn't a concrete barrier. There was just grass in those days. And at 70 miles an hour, ran into another car, killing two teenage boys, a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old. Instantly, they all died. That family that lost their teenage sons was heartbroken. My uncle had paid the ultimate price, having passed away himself. No way in the world did he want that to happen. He didn't try to make it happen. He just fell asleep. He made a mistake. Poor judgment, getting behind the wheel when he was not equipped to do so. How can that be forgiven? How could that family be forgiven? It was helped for them to understand that my aunt and uncle left behind seven children to fend for themselves. There was some sympathy, but their pain lingered on. When we consider... Our Lenten theme has been the theme of being forgiven and forgiveness. And our topic for tonight is who needs forgiveness. When we consider the fact that every person who is alive on this earth today and all who have ever lived, save Jesus himself, have committed many, many sins, made many mistakes, done countless things they wish they could undo or fix or make better. And the numbers are staggering. When we consider all the types of sin we commit on a daily basis, it blows me away. There are sins of commission, which are things where we are actually directly breaking God's law or his word or his standards, whether we know it or not, whether we mean to or not. We may tell a white lie to protect ourselves at work. We might cheat just a little bit on our taxes. We might say an unkind word to someone or speak behind someone's back and slander them, looking for some kind of advantage in a relationship. We might look longingly at someone else's spouse when we're married ourselves and so commit adultery in our hearts as Jesus defined it. We might use God's name in vain in a moment of anger or harbor malice against somebody out of bitter envy and jealousy. Oh, we tell ourselves these bitter, angry feelings we're holding towards others somehow are for our own protection so that we won't get hurt again. We might just be plain old selfish and self-centered. And then there's sins of omission, the things that we should do that we don't do, failing to do something that's in our power to do. We may have failed in our spiritual life to live up to the prayer life that we want to with God, our devotional life. We might have failed to be the father or mother we know that our children have needed us to be. We might have failed to reach out to the poor and the needy around us while we live in relative wealth. Whether we realize it or not, every day we are racking up piles of violations against God and others that we can't do much about, whether knowingly or unknowingly. It's not as simple as me throwing a dime up on the counter at a jewel store or taking 10 or $20 to a neighbor's house to pay for something that was broken. If a good person, and I mean a really good person, an average person probably sins 30 or 40 times a day, but if a good person sinned only 10 times a day, it starts adding up 
that adds up to about 70 times a week that we've sinned, about 3,600 times in a year. And oh yeah, before we go too much further, let's be reminded of God's judgment in his word for each and every one of those sins. It says in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. So let's go back to our, our math here. Each of those sins is a capital offense in God's book. If you've lived about 20 years, you've racked up 70-plus thousand capital offenses, death sentences. 30 years, over 100,000. 50 years, like me, close to 200,000. And 75 years, as some may have, over a quarter of a million capital offenses. What in the world can we do with that? What are we going to do about it? We are completely unable to pay back God for what we have done. We can't even pay him back for one sin, let alone hundreds of thousands of them. But that's where God's forgiveness comes in. And I want to work with a definition of forgiveness that was found. I found in a book, a wonderful book called Forgive and Love Again by John Nieder and Thomas Thompson. Here's the definition for forgiveness they give us. Forgiveness is the heartfelt decision to release the person who hurt you from the obligation incurred when you were mistreated. Powerful words. It's a decision. It goes on to say this. Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness releases the offender from ever having to pay his obligation to you. When an offense is committed, there's a moral imperative that payment must be made to compensate for the wrong. This sense of justice is written to every fiber of our being. Forgiveness cancels the moral debt. Well, that's what the Last Supper and Good Friday was really all about, that Jesus was going about doing what was necessary to cancel the debt each one of us and every human who would ever live would owe to God. Scripture tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The New Century Version says it this way, When you were spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self, God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the debt, which listed all the rules we had failed to follow. He took away that record with its rules and nailed it to the cross. You see, somebody had to do what nobody could do for themselves, and that somebody was Jesus Tonight, as we have experienced the foot washing, which Jesus did with his disciples, and in just a few moments, we're going to share in the communion table. We are remembering the price that Jesus paid, the debt that he paid on our behalf so that all of our sins could be forgiven. All of that tremendous debt we have to God could be canceled. And my friends, it is. Your debt to God in Christ has been canceled as you accept that and receive it. But somehow there's something about the human nature that we have that we all share in. We still want to fix things. We want to somehow make things right. There's something in us that wants to do this. I read an account that Chuck Swindoll shared some time back. A bank had hired a new janitor. And not long after hiring him, the bank was going to close early one day. So he was in a hurry to get home like everyone else, and he dutifully went around and collected all the trash. And because the bank has security issues, he fed all the trash through the the bank's shredding equipment, which 
chopped it up into tiny, small pieces. Just as he was pouring the last barrel into the shredder, the closing cashier for the bank discovered that that janitor had accidentally shredded all the deposits from that day. Well, two things happened, as you can imagine. The janitor was fired. And the next day, the bank brought in a ton of people, set up long tables, and took these heaps of shredded paper and asked them to try and put back together all those checks, matching up signatures and dates and numbers and micro numbers and everything else. Well, needless to say, that that made the headlines in the news with these three words the next day, an impossible job. You could never put back the hundreds of thousands of of small little pieces to put back together checks, no matter how many people you hire, it was impossible. No matter how much remorse that janitor had or the feverish effort that those bank employees did could change the outcome of this huge mistake. Sometimes we fall into that trap, I believe, where we're trying to make ourselves right with God. And it's the futility of trying to put back thousands, hundreds of thousands of little bitty pieces to repair a mistake that we've made. It simply won't work. God has offered us total forgiveness as he has canceled our debt. I read also recently about an attorney, and this is a true story. After meditating on and considering many scriptures on forgiveness, became convicted. And he decided to cancel the debts of all his clients that owed him money for more than six months. So he drafted a letter explaining his decision. In its biblical basis, he sent out 17 debt-canceling letters via certified mail. Want to make sure they got them. One by one, the letters began to return, unsigned and undelivered. 16 of the 17 letters came back unopened because the clients refused to sign for and open the envelopes, fearing the attorney was suing them for their debts. What a profound picture of how we owe a huge debt of our sin to God who is willing to cancel it completely. But so many people never even open up the letter, never even open up the explanation. We need to understand something that we'll never make God happy or ourselves feel any better by kicking ourselves or putting ourselves down. If we're still punishing ourselves for our worst failures, all we're doing is making a forgivable mistake or sin hurt even more. I don't want to oversimplify this here tonight. We've all been hurt, maybe really badly. Maybe someone has offended you in a way that you believe or think is somehow beyond your ability to forgive. But all the scripture encourages to do, we pray it in the Lord's Prayer, is to forgive as God has forgiven our debts. And therefore, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if you have any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's a simple statement. Just as God made a decision to cancel 100% of our debt to him, we simply extend the same kind of grace and forgiveness to others. Remember, our definition of forgiveness is it's a heartfelt decision that we make. But let's see how Jesus actually put this into practice. Who needed forgiveness around Jesus when he walked the earth? Certainly the most notable one for us is Peter, one of his closest two friends who wanted so badly to please Jesus, to serve him. 
Peter had been renamed Peter from being Simon by Jesus himself. He established him as a leader. He put great responsibility in his hands at different times and and brought him into an inner circle with himself. But we know the story. Peter wanted to be there for Jesus. At the Last Supper, Peter vowed, saying, I'll never deny you. I will be there with you even if I have to die. But in Peter's weak moments, standing by a fire, warming himself, in eyeshot of Jesus Christ, he denied he even knew him three times. Jesus looked over to him at that moment, and Jesus, Peter went off and wept bitterly. He needed to be forgiven. And I love how Jesus did that. To live out the fact that Jesus had already paid the debt for even a personal, interpersonal infraction with him. He approached. He initiated. He went to Peter after his resurrection on that beach, again by a fire. He took him back to the same experience, a fire that Jesus had made, And he restored Peter completely. Friends, I'm convinced tonight, and as we move to a time of communion in just a few moments, many of us need to allow Jesus to take us into that place of restoration. We may actually believe we're forgiven, but we don't think he'll trust us again. We believe we're forgiven theologically, but emotionally, we don't believe God will bring us back into that fellowship, that companionship. But that's what the foot washing was all about. Jesus said to his disciples, you've been made clean by the word I've spoken to you. But unless you let me wash your feet and let you let me do something to help you in this relationship, you'll never have companionship with me. You have no part in me. I believe many of us tonight need to allow Jesus to take us into that place of reconciliation with himself. Two other people in the accounts that we think about throughout the the passion of Jesus are the Roman soldiers who viciously and and, and just violently abused him and tormented him, scourging him and nailing him to a cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the criminal on the cross next to him who had hurled insults to him earlier in that day, Jesus said to him, Today I'm taking you with me to paradise. We cannot sin enough to dull or weaken the love of Jesus Christ for us. He loved Peter enough to restore him. He loved the Roman soldiers enough to ask God to forgive them. He loved a common criminal who was being executed for something he had done wrong. He said, I'm taking you with me to paradise. Jesus' forgiveness, his grace is greater than all our sin. As we turn to the understanding of who needs our forgiveness tonight, let me suggest a couple thoughts to you. Many people in our lives owe us things. Maybe someone in this room you feel owes you something. Someone may owe you an apology, but they can't bring themselves to give it to you, or they don't think they owe you one. Someone may owe you love, affection, and devotion, and the fidelity that they had promised you at an altar. Someone may owe you an explanation. They left without telling you why. For harsh treatment you didn't deserve for repeatedly demeaning or humiliating you. Someone may owe you a childhood that was stolen from you due to alcohol or drug abuse or other issues. Someone may owe you your purity and innocence taken from you. Someone may just owe you money they promised to pay you and never did and you need it desperately. Someone in this room or some are owed a marriage that was stolen by the allure of another. Some may owe you a family life that was ruined by violence and abuse. 
Some others may owe you forgiveness and reconciliation they simply have withheld from you. Someone owes you their approval and blessing that you have never felt. A career that's been stolen from you. A job or promotion you worked hard for. A drunk driver may have stolen a family member from you. A failed medical procedure may have taken someone you loved very dearly. Some of your relatives may have fought you tooth and nail over the settling of your family's estate, and they owe you an apology. A trusted friend or a confidant may turn and betray you and breaks your heart. I don't know what debts you feel or you are rightfully owed here tonight, what things you're holding over someone's head, but God's solution to our sin is the same solution that we're to grant and extend to others. In fact, it's the only solution. Sometimes people do things that make us so very mad. We just want to scream. We say, that shouldn't have happened. Thomas Akempis wrote these words, Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. And Dr. Hal Lindsay put it this way so profoundly, For me to fail to forgive myself or anyone else who has offended me is to imply that I have a higher standard of forgiveness than God, because whatever it is that has so hurt me that I can't forgive it, God already has. One other obstacle that stands in our way so easily and so often is, and modern brain science tells us this, that thinking about revenge or harm being done to somebody who's offended us or we're holding something against actually stimulates chemicals in our brain in the pleasure centers. It actually stimulates chemicals in our brain the same way that a craving for chocolate that's being satisfied does. But we need to rise above that. Who needs to be forgiven? Every single one of us. What was the solution? God canceled our debt wholesale, just said, I'm canceling it because of what Jesus has done. And tonight, I want to share one last quote that I think is very profound. It's by Philip Yancey. He says this, At last I finally understood, in the final analysis, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. By forgiving, I release my own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness to God to work out. I leave in God's hands the scales that must balance justice and mercy. Let me share this with you. In this last month, during the season of Lent, we've heard some amazingly powerful messages from Pastor Meyer and Pastor Ogden, and we've been blessed by them. And even as I've been listening to those and preparing for this message tonight, I have been deeply convicted. I've had to do some deep heart work. You see, I've realized, though I believe myself to be a forgiving person, there's some people I've only forgiven like half their debt. I'm giving them a discount. I'm still holding out something out there. And I've had to go deeper and deeper and deeper and just get to the place where I've had to say, I'm just canceling it. That's it. And I'm never going to bring it up again. But let me give you one practice that may help you tonight. If you're struggling and you've tried and tried and tried and tried some more to reconcile something in your soul with somebody, there's only one place to take it, and that's right to the throne of God, the just judge. Here's a practice I'd encourage you to consider. As you have an issue with somebody, see yourself before the very throne of God, the true and just judge. See yourself as a prosecutor in that court and make your case. 
In fact, I encourage you, if you've got an issue you've been bothered by for years, maybe even decades that you can't get past, write down, get it off your chest and write your case down. Every minute feeling and detail and everything about it that's causing you to be hindered. And then go make your case like a prosecutor before the judge. But as you approach that judge's bench, the king of kings, look to his right, your left. There you will see Jesus Christ with nail-scarred hands and feet and a pierced side. And if you listen close enough, you'll hear Jesus appealing to the Father, mentioning your sins, mentioning you by name, and appealing on the basis of his shed blood and broken body that the Father forgive you and cancel the debt against you. And in that moment, you'll be able to go back to the judge and say, Father, I dropped the charges based on what Jesus has done for me. The healing begins the moment we do that. Tonight you received a handout that looks like a statement of account. It was intended to be that way. And I realize, as we've shared in many experiences here tonight, in worship and in the word, even in the foot washing, it was a very tender moments. You may realize there's some debts that you still owe God. You may feel guilty about something you've never told anybody about, but you live with this inner gnawing pain. You can't get past it. You may know you've done something that's violated him. I want to encourage you to take the step of faith and write it down on this statement. Write it down. It's private. It's for you alone to see. But as you approach one of the communion stations, in just a few moments, I'll give you some instructions. You're going to have the opportunity to receive the bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus. You're going to have the opportunity to receive the cup, which represents the shed blood of Jesus. And at these stations, if you bring this statement, each of these stations, the elder serving there will have an opportunity to cancel that debt because of the blood of Jesus and stamp it canceled. And I'm going to want you to take that home with you so you remember on this day you receive that forgiveness. The reality is that's all we can do with our sins is ask God to cancel them and also to cancel the ones that people have sinned against us.